Today, we're going to talk about Genesis 3, 14 through 19. This is what I sent to you. You may be thinking, wait, I thought we were in Acts. Well, we are kind of, sort of. This built, this came out of, of last week, so I'm going to read for us. On your handout, you'll see Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray for our sermon today. Almighty God, I pray that you would give me good words of truth that we need to hear from you. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll remind you of last week, because this is kind of part two. And I thought it was going to be part two of two, but it might be part two of like four or five. I've stumbled onto a big topic. I mean, suffering's a huge topic. But um, I don't know, last week was kind of a jumping off point because we talked about in Acts 28, that first episode, the island of Malta, and Paul gets bit by the viper and they think, oh, you're cursed. You did something terrible. And justice has now visited this upon you. And then nothing happens. And they say, oh, you must be a god. And I said, this is I call this Maltese logic, the logic of the people of Malta. And I tried to make the case that we think this way a lot in our world, and it's a problem. But I said there's also, you know, a good amount in in the Bible, particularly in Deuteronomy and other places, that, that sound a lot like Maltese logic. So what do we what do we do? And that's where we get this as a jumping off point. Because what I want to deal with today is whether or not we should try, like the Maltese were trying, to to understand why we suffer. And if so, how do we think about that? This is a really important thing. So here's why I changed my mind in approaching this. I mentioned this last week. I honestly am not that interested constitutionally in the causes of suffering. For some people, that is critically important. In fact, I know it's a classic cliche for a reason. For some people, they they struggle to believe that there's a good God because there's so much suffering in the world. And that kind of relates to why suffering happens. Others, they really need to understand 
suffering first and foremost before they can even think about responding to it. And the reason I'm, I'm resistant to that, I think, constitutionally, is um, I have good friends who come from different cultural contexts than I do. And I have found that when something bad happens, their knee-jerk response is immediately, first and foremost, primarily, you have to assign blame. And that strikes me as problematic in all sorts of ways. So I let the pendulum swing too much, and I said, I, I'm not interested. I don't, I don't, I don't want to know about why suffering happens. I just want to know how to respond to it, how to live with it, how to deal with it, how to help others who are dealing with it. But, 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 preparing last week's sermon and this week's sermon, I actually think it's pretty critical that we think about causes of suffering. Here's why. Let me give you a few reasons why it's critical that we actually kind of try to at least wrestle with it. Let me say, this doesn't mean you have to understand your suffering, because a lot of times you're not going to. But we should try, I do think. Here's why. I mentioned last week, Deuteronomy has these two sort of similar phenomena. Retribution and act consequence model, which both sound kind of like Maltese logic. You do something wrong, and either something naturally bad follows, Gave you the example. This is a nice verse. I love this verse. I should memorize it. We should all memorize this. What was it from Proverbs? If you eat too much honey, you're going to vomit. It's a great biblical verse to memorize. <laughs> that's that consequence model. Okay, that's built into the fabric of creation. If, something, uh, if you do something really horribly stupid, often bad consequences follow. Um, and then retribution is a similar phenomenon, but that's when God seems to be more actively involved in what happens. And you get that in the Old Testament. And then you get Job. And something that I learned in seminary that was one of probably the most important things that I learned and that really changed the way I read the Bible is sometimes it's not what the Bible says, but the very shape of Scripture that's revealing and important to us. What I mean by that is the fact that in God's providence and inspiration and guidance, we ended up with this book that we still read thousands of years after the fact that has both Deuteronomy and Job in it. Neither of them got taken out. Neither of them got synthesized. Neither of them got smoothed out. They sit there in this deep tension. It's revealing. Reveals something about God. Reveals something about how we need to read Scripture. And I, I used to think of so-called contradictions as a problem to be solved. And most, most Christians I've encountered do, and we come up with these elaborate, systematic ways to reconcile things that seem to not fit. And now I think of them as a gift, and I don't try to reconcile them at all. Scripture is this giant, beautiful treasury. It's this giant, beautiful library, and it's meant to be read under the guidance of the Spirit. And sometimes we need to hear one thing, and sometimes we need to hear another thing. And we may not always be able to articulate how those things fit, but they're both true. And so the fact that Deuteronomy says, and Proverbs says, if you do certain things, you might suffer as a result, and that could explain your suffering. And the fact that Job says, no, 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 it doesn't always work like that. It's not always your fault, means that what? Maybe we should try to ask questions, 
to understand our suffering and those of others. And as I started to think this way, I thought, wasn't that kind of the premise, the assumption of what we do every week with confession? There's no confession, real confession, unless you honestly reckon with the question, did I do something horrible? Did I do something even slightly bad? Did I sin? Did I do something wrong? Did I err? Did I not live up to God's calling on my life? That's what we do when we confess. Well, that is to ask questions like, did I eat too much honey? And that's why I vomited. So true confession, I think, assumes that we're going to wrestle with why things happen in our lives and what our role is in them, what our responsibility is in them. And then there's the importance of story. And I have to confess to you, I hate when I I preach something and I know it's so important. And I want to say something so profound, I just don't quite know why to say it's important. Story is just critical. When I was on a mission trip, we did this exercise that I'll never forget. It's wonderful. They had us present our spiritual autobiography to the team. And going through the process of saying, where have I experienced God in my life and how? Where has my sin come into play in my life? Where has God redeemed the things that I have screwed up? That's a powerful thing. And then I started to realize that this was another thing I realized in seminary that changed the way I view things. This, again, is the shape of the Bible we have. The fundamental impulse of all of Scripture, I would argue, is this. Looking back on a history, on a life as a people, as individuals, and saying, where was God there? And trying to understand that and wrestle with that and write it down and pass it on. It's trying to understand your story retrospectively. How do I understand the Exodus? What just happened to us? Why did that see part? What should I tell my kids about this? How does that matter for my life? Looking back on things extraordinary, sinful, good, bad, indifferent, and trying to make sense of where God was in that, telling that story is at the heart of what Scripture is for us, situating us in that story. I'm not going to read this to you, but I had to put it on your handout again. I've read this before, once or twice, in sermons. This was a quotation that one of my professors shared with us, and it's from a Holocaust survivor. The reason I put this on your handout is just to say, make this simple point. Understanding our suffering is something we should aim at and try for. But it's only part of it. Ultimately, we do have to respond. And this is one of the most beautiful responses I've come across. Now, it's interesting because you can read this quotation in all sorts of different ways. I want to give you a little glimpse into how I've come to read it upon like the 10th reading. I think this is evidence of God's deep gift and presence in this man's life. And you may read this and say, no, what? It seems like God is absent. 
But here's the beauty of it. If you notice how he can't help but come back to second person speech. What I mean is, at the start of the quotation, he starts about talking about God out there, third person. He says, God is this, God is that, God is that. Like he's talking to someone else, his friend maybe. But then halfway through he shifts and he says, you, you. He can't help it. Despite all that's happened to him in this concentration camp, all the pain, all the uncertainty, all the lament, all the distance he feels, God is still his God and he is still God's child. And that is just in him so deeply, it can't be wrenched away even if he can't even feel it. That's God being present in someone's suffering in a profound way. And I put it on there because this isn't the topic of the sermon. This is an aside. The topic is trying to wrestle with the causes of suffering. But if we think of response, the only thing I know to give you is we've got to find God somewhere, somehow in our sufferings. I heard this years ago. It still haunts me. Someone said, I don't remember who. I've never met a person that fell away from faith, that stopped believing who didn't stop praying long before that. It's when they stopped trying to wrestle like this man wrestles. In the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of their questions, they stopped trying to wrestle with the you, with God being out there. And that's what led to their loss of faith. So let's talk briefly about Genesis 3. What causes suffering? I listed, I think, several things here. These are the options that came to mind. Things that I've heard, things that I've thought of, things I've encountered. Different causes. Let me know if you think of any others. I think I'm going to try to deal with some of these others on a different day. So I wrote, consequence of my own actions? That's a consequence. Why did I vomit? I ate too much honey got to stop using that example. Come up with another one. Consequence of someone else's actions. We'll talk about this in a minute. Consequence of the fall. That's what we're going to talk about today. Spiritual warfare. God's discipline or God doing something in our life. I think those are all the causes I've come across that are potential causes we need to wrestle with. We're going to talk mainly about the fall today, but I do want to remind you about consequence, which we said last week. This probably causes, in my view, the most suffering in the world. We have free will, so we can do things. This is what retribution is premised on. This is what our consequence is premised on. This is our experience in life. We can do things and choose to do them, and they have disastrous consequences for ourselves and other people. That's the wrinkle on the act consequence model. If I choose to do something horrific, it can destroy another's life. We said that was Jonah, or almost Jonah. Jonah's disobedience endangered everyone on that ship. This is the millstone around the neck. Luke 17, it would be, this is Jesus, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's that consequence. 
Why? Because it's my actions can destroy some little child's life, can cause them to stumble, can cause them to not believe, can cause them trauma, can cause them all sorts of problems. The millstone around your neck should give you as much fear as anything in this life, I think. It does for me. But what about this, this, this cause that people refer to as the fall? This is, here's why I wanted to wrestle with this today. I don't know about you, but this is a standard part of my evangelical cultural upbringing. Child asks, Dad, why do mosquitoes sting me? You say, well, because Adam sinned. You ever heard that? You ever answered like that? Dad, why is there cancer in the world? Because of the fall. And I just wanted to dig in this week and say, as we're wrestling with why we suffer, as we say, is it my fault? Have I done something I need to confess? Or has someone done something to me that I need to forgive? Is the fall a a thing? Is that fair reasoning? Can we reason like we do with our children? This is particularly important because of this. um, Well, here's, here's another impulse. Here's two other impulses. When Kanai was diagnosed with epilepsy when he was about five, Something I started to struggle with for the first time in my life is when you read through the New Testament and there's someone who's epileptic, it's always because they have a demon. Well, I didn't like that thought and I didn't feel comfortable with that thought. I mean, poor little Kanai in my modern day and age going to the hospital and getting these tests and seeing these neurological scans, I I felt like there was some explanation for what was happening other than he had a demon. And so I wanted to wrestle with this idea. Is the nature of the world that we live in sometimes, matter and entropy and all the decay, is that a product of the fall? Can I I say that something like epilepsy can just happen and a demon didn't cause it or God didn't cause it? Is that okay to say? And then I read this book I often talk to you about by Kate Bowler who's famous for writing these amazing pieces in New York Times and books and otherwise about her journey with cancer. And her famous book that I've read a few times is called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Believed. And the impulse for this sermon is all is, is that. You know, she, she hated when people would come and they'd write cards and say, God gave you cancer because he wants to do something through this. And she was like, I don't think that's right. And I kind of hate that. And I agree with her. But I want to test my instincts. I want to have a more robust understanding of, of, of what someone might say to someone like that that's more helpful. So here's my best attempt to deal with that logic, the fall, the fall. It's a lot harder than I thought to think through this passage. And as you go through and you research and you look at all of these things that have been written, this is one of the most written about passages in all of the Bible. It's one of the most difficult to understand and debated in all of the Bible. I did not know that, but it is. There are a lot of reasons why it's hard. I'll give you a few. There's the problem of generality here. 
So think about the snake. I'll give you the snake as an example. Is the hostility that happens between the snake and the woman, is that just this snake and this woman? Or is it all snakes and all women? Or is it all snakes and all humans, male or female? Or is it not just a snake, but some sort of embodiment of evil and sin and temptation in all humans? Problem of generality. How do you understand what this is saying? It's a big difficulty. Here's another one. The problem of symbolism. Is this a metaphor or not? Is this the ancient Hebrews trying to understand why snakes are so scary? <laughs> a lot of people have said that. A lot of people have said that. Or is this symbolic? Them reckoning with why there's sin and evil in the world. The problem of symbolism. There's the problem of the ancient mindset. So this cuts in two directions. There are some people that would say, at the time that this was written thousands of years ago, it wasn't really in their purview to ask the sorts of questions about the origin of evil. They were simply concerned with the reality of living with snakes in the world. So they weren't interested in our questions of the origin of evil. They weren't spiritual in that sense. Others say the exact opposite. In the ancient world, there was no division between the natural and supernatural. Everything was spiritual. Every epileptic fit or snake bite or shipwreck had a spiritual cause. What do we do with that if we live in a different time and age than the people who wrote this? And then there's this question, which I find to be the hardest one. Does that even matter? See, thinking about what we're doing when we read the Bible is a hard thing. A lot of people would say when you're reading any text, a poem, a novel, the Bible, you're trying to understand what the original author meant in their head. Except that that's a problem because that's not really actually what you should be trying to do at all. It's relevant. It's very relevant. But I could start listing off a dozen examples of times when people have come up with beautiful, powerful readings of a text that if you interview the author, they had no idea at all that's what they had written. And it gets a little harder with Scripture, because guess what? Did any of these human authors fully grasp the truth, God's truth, of what they were writing? No. There's the problem of guidance here. When you go and you try to understand the fall and you read through what people have said, they focus on one thing and almost one thing only in chapter three, and that is the question of original sin and whether sin is inherited. And there are people who denigrate that idea and say, it's not some sort of genetic mutation. Actions don't work like that. That's like Lamarck's view of evolution, and we know that's stupid. Well, I got to remember high school science to understand that argument. But there, you know, people just go back and forth about original sin. But I was interested in the fall part, the curse part, the world we live in part. Does entropy come out of this? 
There's not a lot of guidance on that. So, where should we end today? Where does that leave us? All right, I want to say a few things. I think we can say something generally, and that is this. Here's one of my favorites. Remember this guy? You guys laughed at this. You guys love this. This is the best nickname we've come across. Remember John Chrysostom's nickname? The Golden Tongue? This is the Golden Tongue. I want, to be, I want to learn to be a preacher such that I am referred to as the golden tongue. Here's what Chrysostom says. He says, Here, here's, what God, here's how God thinks of Genesis 3. My intention has been, had been, God is saying, for you to have a life free of trouble and distress. That's the world he created. My intention was to give you a life free of trouble and distress. Rid of all pain and grief, filled with every pleasure and with no sense of bodily needs despite your bodily condition. And if that is God's intention, which I think is a fair reading of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in light of the whole Bible, then yeah, the fact that there's pain, distress, grief, trouble, these are things that came in at some point as a part of this story. So we can say generally, yeah, this is a fall and there are real world implications. We can do a little better. I mean, I think you only abstract a little bit to say something like this. Here's what we encounter after sin enters the world. Bodies with pain, problematic desires. That's the curse. No, it's not the curse. Let me correct that. That's what happens with the woman. Problematic relationships. That would ha that's what happens between the woman and the man. Basically, here's how I read part of that. You want to know why patriarchy happens in the world? It's sin. That's sin. Sin entered the world, and what happens? The man all of a sudden thinks that he needs to rule over the woman. That's a consequence of sin. It's not how God created it. A suboptimal environment, thorns and thistles. Yeah, that's suffering. That's the world we live in. That came out of original sin. Decay, death, is that there? People really struggle with this. They say things like, okay, it's not entirely clear if death happened as a result of this sin. Furthermore, if you do try to understand the Bible and evolution together in some sort of way, what would you say about like all the animals who died long before humans died? How do you make sense of that? Is that good? Is that bad? How do you reconcile that with the story? I don't know, but I do know this, that Paul gives us the important guidance on how to read this story in Romans 5. And I have to read all of this because this is one of the best passages in all of the Bible, in my opinion. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, so that's revealing, and death came through sin, so that seems to answer my question. Not all my questions. I still don't know how to answer the animal one, but that's okay. And so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. 
Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. That may be the best line here. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, that seems to answer our question in some general way. Suffering, death, yeah, that came in because of the fall. If the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely, much more surely, have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Is it fair to point to the fall as a cause of things like mosquitoes and cancer and a lot of our suffering? I think so. A lot of what I've already argued is, but things that really clench it for me are two passages I put on your handout. Romans 9, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not because of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, whatever that means. It means that the created world, the non-human created world we live in, is not in its state of full intended glory and the glory it will one day have, but it's in some sort of state of futility as we wait now. And then another example of this, of course, is one of the best images in the Bible. Isaiah 11, the wolf shall lie with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. If that's the vision for what we hope for, then the world we live in now is certainly not working like it's going to work one day. Is it fair to attribute a lot of our suffering to the fallen world we live in? Is it fair to say that a demon did not cause Kanai's epilepsy? Is it fair to say to Kate Bowler, God didn't give you your cancer? Yeah, it is. It is. Can we say specifically in all of those cases? No, that's harder. Because we don't know exactly how it works, but we can wrestle with the question. One final note before I give us our questions and then we come to the table. Here's something that a lot of interpreters, not a lot, but a few interpreters noticed. I'd never noticed further about this story. And I love pointing these things out because Genesis 3, we've probably all read it multiple times, familiar with it, heard about it. We think we know what it says. We think we know all there is to know. Here's a little detail I'd never noticed. And I don't quite 
know what to do with this, but it seems kind of beautiful and kind of important. Folks, point this out. What's cursed in the story? Take a look at it. What is cursed in the story and what is not cursed in the story? Two things are cursed. The snake and the ground. What's not cursed? The man and the woman. It's really, really interesting. I think it reveals something about God's heart. The man was cursed later. Jesus took on all the curses. Curse of the ground, curse of, I mean, he took on all the curses into himself, but that was Jesus' role and his love and his life. So here are two questions to wrestle with this week. First one is a series of questions. I didn't know how to narrow this down, but it just seems so important to try to answer these questions. Do you know what's caused your own suffering? You may not, and that's okay, but have you wrestled with it? How does your suffering fit into the story of your life? Where is God in your suffering? That's a really important question to wrestle with. That's why I gave you that quotation. Where is God in your suffering? And then the last one, and like we do last week, and someone's going to have to remind me to bring pens next time. So if you have a pen, take it out. Question we're going to always ask now so that we can be active listeners is, what is one thing God may have said to you through this sermon? Just jot something down that stuck with you that you might want to reflect on or ruminate on or take with you so that you don't just leave everything here.